For the last four or five weeks, we've been focusing upon the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practice of generosity, and um, we've been doing this liturgy for the last four or five weeks. Uh, it is, the liturgy is it, it's part of worship. Um, as we think about our generosity, not just financially, but giving ourselves to the Lord. We're going to uh, read this together out loud, so if you would join me in reading this prayer together. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus, to spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that choke the worth, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world, I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are to all the world. Amen. Good morning. Our central text is from Philippians 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God." For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is the word of the Lord. I'm smiling at you now, because I don't think you'll be smiling back at me in about two or three minutes, all right? In fact, this is what I thought attendance would look like next week after this sermon. Uh, so I just want to be honest, uh, we have a really hard passage and some things that are really encroaching upon things that 
give us a limp. And they're hard. And no matter how much I've tried to put a lot of work into sermons and winsome about speaking into hard truths, unless the Lord builds a house, we work in vain, right? So will you, will you just join us in prayer for all of our hearts to really hear? Because it's going to take us to the throne of grace, but we got to get through the journey first. So Lord, um, I cannot deal with my own idols. <laughs> I'm grabbing to them all the time and, and prostrating myself before them. And I resist you. <laughs> and when it comes to these really first order things that are really secondary in our lives, that should, Lord, help us to make the kingdom first. We're only here because you died and you're resurrected and you're ascended and we're united to a king of a new kingdom that is in this world. So would you just blow, Holy Spirit? That's just really my simple prayer. Would you just blow? In your name we pray, amen. Has anybody ever heard of David Platt before? He wrote a book. Has anybody read Radical? He wrote a book in 2009 titled Radical. Uh, and it was radical. Uh, it was a brilliant critique of the prosperity gospel, but also it was a really challenging book for those who read it because it challenged us to really consider how much of the gospel of Jesus that we believe has really been manipulated by the American dream. And as you might imagine, when you start talking about things like that, he got a little pushback because in the words of the late Merle Haggard, when you're running down my country, man, what? You're walking on the what side of me, the fine side of me. He wasn't picking on America, but he certainly was challenging. Is, are we really believing the gospel Jesus preached, or are we manipulating it for a gospel of comfort? Whatever pushback he got then pales in comparison pushback he got in 2020 when from the pulpit he preached these words in the fall of 2020. Do the math. And he said this. We are not going to divide as a church how you vote in this election. That didn't seem controversial at the time, but indeed it was. And I'm going to step aside, and I want you to watch an interview with David Platt, with Russell Moore, talk about that moment and what he learned and what we can learn from it. So let's watch. A little bit of technical problems, but we're back. And I want to talk about politics. Um, you know, every pastor I think I know is dealing with division or potential division over political issues. You and I both have dealt with that uh, a little bit. Uh, is this just a weird moment or is there a way for the church to get through this? Oh, I, I think there's a way for the church to get through this for sure. And, uh, I don't know how, how weird it is. It definitely feels uh, weird at times. Like, I, I really honestly did not think that in fall 2020 when I was preaching through First Peter and, and just said, hey, we're, we're not going to divide as a church over how you vote in this election. And uh, I didn't think that would be a controversial statement, um, but it it turned out to be one and uh but i i definitely i'm confident there's a way through this that is much better than where we have been i think what has been exposed over recent years is that we're 
we've not actually been united around Jesus, that we've been united around a variety of other things, ideas, preferences, um, convictions even, uh, but not first order convictions, not primary convictions. When I heard people saying, you can't be a Christian and vote for fill in the blank and heard different names in the blank, it just, it was so clear that we had taken, like you can't be a Christian and do it. Like we had taken how you vote in a presidential election and we put it at the same level we would put the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, like the Trinitarian nature of God. And so I think the way forward is to, to, and this is one of the things I try to dive into in the book is just to make sure we put our convictions in proper places, primary and secondary and tertiary convictions, things that unite us as followers of Jesus, things that we may be in different churches because of our different convictions or people that even in the same church would just agree to disagree on. Uh, but to, to put those convictions in different buckets and then to remember how to love each other when we disagree on across those buckets when it comes to those convictions. And I just think what's been shown over the last few years is our muscles for loving each other well across those differences have not been strong. And my hope is that we, we can walk through this and on the other side have deeper unity than we had before because it's a unity that's truly around Jesus and having learned to love each other when we have a little bit more. Couldn't have said it any better. Before Jesus uh, was getting ready to depart this earth, he prayed with the disciples and he didn't just pray with the disciples in front of him. He prayed for you and I, his future disciples that would span the globe. And Jesus, of all things he prayed for, he prayed for this. He said, I don't ask for these only. I also pray for those who will believe me through their word that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world will believe that you've sent me. But this, everyone will know that we're, you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus could have prayed for anything, couldn't he have? He could have prayed, I, I pray that all my followers would think alike, look alike, dress alike, do most of life exactly alike. He could have prayed for, I hope, pray my churches will be big and have great programs and amenities. But he said, first order, the thing that's going to let the world know that I literally rose from the dead more than anything else is that they are united to me, united to me. In the city of Philippi, that was a radical thing happening because the, the people who were holding on to that, it, it, it broke down racial barriers. It broke down Class bearers, you had slaves and free people, women and children united. And they looked radically different from their world, and they lived radically different. They were loving their enemies. They were getting struck and blessing. They were sharing their possessions with one another. They, Rome did not know what to do with them other than to say, we've got to get rid of you. We're in a serious defiled, uh, title, Defiant Joy, because what is joy when everything around us says it shouldn't be joyful? It's defiant. And this week, we're looking at defiant unity, what Jesus prayed for for us. What does it look like in a world of disunity, 
when everything is fracturing and pushing us to not be unified, to grab hold of first order priority here. So let's just do two today. The basis of unity and how to seek unity. The basis of unity, how to seek unity. You with me still? Okay, let's do that. So let's begin. All right, so if you've been in and out, we've been in the series, obviously, in Philippians, and up to now, I mean, really through the first 26 verses, we've been talking a lot about the Apostle Paul's conditions. If you don't know this, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi from where? From jail, right? So rough conditions, and he's talked a lot about how the gospel has been helpful. But this is a shift now in verse 27. Because now what's happening is the Apostle Paul has gotten these, these, these reports from the man Epaphroditus who came from Philippi to tell him, how is the church doing? And, and Epaphroditus was very honest. He said, look, the church is starting to take on water here. The church is taking on water because they're starting to get opposed by their community. They're facing a lot of opposition in Philippi. There's some persecution happening. And the question is, Why? <laughs> Why do you and I read so much in the, in the New Testament epistles about persecution? Well, one of the things we mentioned, okay, remember Philippi was a city that was a Roman outpost. It was a very strategic city for the Roman Empire, okay? And in this city, it was a bastion for Roman nationalism. The, if you lived in Philippi, one, there was a lot of retired Roman soldiers who lived there. But this is the place where you fly the flag. It's God and country, God and country. And the reason is that because who was God? Who was Caesar? So you have this empire and you have all this pride. And the Roman, to be a Roman citizen was of the highest value. I mean, this was everything. You're a Roman citizen. And the reality is what happened with that is that, but that worked well for you if you were of means. If you had a lot of money, if you, if you were not a slave, if you were not a woman, the Roman good life worked for you. And so if you're a Roman citizen, ultimately it was God, country, and my personal comfort and pleasure at the expense of everyone else. And all of a sudden, and you're living in Philippi and you're looking at a group of people who are gathering and they're breaking down all these barriers. And they're doing things that were a threat to Rome. You have to understand, when a group of people are saying, we're against slavery, you got the average Roman saying, well, if you do that, what's that going to do for my bottom line? And what's that going to do for my commitment to pleasure? If you give women a voice, well, now, now women might grab power, and they might grab some of our stuff. Well, we don't want that anymore. So they look at these Christians who are actually living so differently in the way they looked and just the diversity there, but also in the way they lived, okay? And again, it wasn't just because they didn't worship Caesar. It's because they looked really different. I want you to pay attention to something, okay? You got out of bed on a rainy morning. Nothing more exciting than reading a guy named Athenagoras from 177 AD, okay? But there's a man named Athenagoras. He was a Christian. And uh, nobody here is that. I've never baptized a kid named Athenagoras. Just saying, okay? <laughs> what a name. But anyway... He goes to Marcus Aurelius to plea against all this persecution. So it's been like 120 years at this point of Christians really suffering. And he, he makes a plea, but I want you to look at what you see, okay? He goes and he says, on the contrary, you will find unlettered people. And you mean uneducated, not the winners of life. You'll find tradesmen and you'll find old women who, though unable to even express in words the advantage of our teaching, they demonstrate by the acts the values of the principles. 
They don't rehearse speeches, but evidence good deeds. When, they, when they're struck, they don't strike back. When they're robbed, they don't sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. And if we didn't think that a God ruled over the human race, why would we live in such purity? The idea is impossible. But since we're persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead, that we must give an account of all our life here to God who made us in the world, we adopt a temperate, a generous, and a despised way of life. Wow. For we think that even if we lose our lives, we should suffer here no evil to compare to the word we shall receive from the great judge for a gentle, generous in modest life. In response to that, the Apostle Paul writes, and he's trying to give help to this church, and he just, it, it's kind of crazy. You read it, and he says, well, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It almost sounds like the Apostle Paul saying, you know, I know things are really hard, but what you should really do is focus on your behavior, you know? Just keep your nose clean. Try to stay out of trouble. But verse 27, as it turns out, literally might be one of the most radical verses in the entire New Testament, okay? Because English translators really don't know what to do with this Greek word right here. It's polyphulamai. It's even hard to pronounce. And it's a word that literally only appears once elsewhere in the entire New Testament, and it literally means behave as citizens, okay? So here's Paul with all these people facing all these pressures, being a Roman citizen means everything. And, and, and Paul writes and he says, behave as citizens. What does he mean by that? Is he saying, behave as a Roman. You know, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. Like, just go back to hating your enemies. Go back to uh, treating people who are different than you differently, right? He's not saying that. Because later in the book, we get this word, okay? Please stick with this. Later in the book, in the city of Philippi, Paul has the audacity to say, our citizenship is in heaven. And those were fighting words in Philippi. Our citizenship is in heaven. And when Paul comes back to say this right here in the city of Philippi, he is saying our citizenship is not Roman. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what you need to understand is, is Jesus is going to come back to this earth. He's a king, and he's going to rule on a throne on this earth, okay? But when Jesus Christ, when he died and when he resurrected and when he ascended, Jesus Christ went to a throne of a kingdom that is not of this world. Jesus Christ is in, on top of a, a kingdom that is invisible, but the reality is it's made visible <laughs> physically. This invisible kingdom that Jesus is in charge of is made physical through you and I, the church. This church literally is a physical manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to think about something. We wouldn't say heaven and earth are very similar right now, would we? <laughs> heaven is otherworldly, if you're a citizen of a country that is not of this world, that is very, very different than the values and the ethics of this true country of yours is going to be very, very different than the values and ethics of this world. For example, what Paul is saying is there will never be a country or a political system 
that will ever fit and match the values of the kingdom of heaven. Here's for example. This is a very generalization, okay? So those who are more liberal-minded, okay? You know, you come to the values of the kingdom of heaven, and, and you know, I preached to this a couple years ago in uh, the Justice series, and you read the book of Leviticus, you read Deuteronomy, and then you read the book of Acts, and you start reading, and you're realizing, here's a group of people who value justice, radical justice for every person. These are a group of people who had a very generous and hospitable mindset towards the foreigner. These are people where, and I read the book of Acts, I want to rip some of this stuff out, who are sharing their possessions with one another. Like, that really annoys me, okay? I work really hard, okay? I don't have much. And they're just, they're, they're, as an introvert, they're really, that scares me, they're sharing their lives with another. They're really in each other's lives. They're sharing their possessions. They're forgiving financial debts. They're forgiving each other. They're loving their enemies. They're seeking racial equity and reconciliation. And those on the left would look at them and say, well, we agree with that. But these same ethics and values of the citizens of heaven come right into this world and say, but here's what we say about marriage and sexuality and gender distinctives. And immediately all of a sudden that, whoa, 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 that's not just oppressive, that's dangerous, that's hate language right there. But then you take these same ethics into extremely more conservative camps and all of a sudden you start talking about generosity to the poor and you start talking about sharing possessions and you start talking about seeking this and the way to treat the foreigner and all of a sudden you get accused of being woke. I mean, look at me, I look like Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. I got accused of being woke for preaching on justice from the book of Leviticus. Now you're with me, okay? But then you take these same ethics and you say, but we believe this about marriage. And we're like, we're with you. We're for family values. My whole point is this. Point is this. Here's a kingdom and an ethics that's out of this world. A citizenship that is not of this world. That contradicts everybody and affirms parts of everybody. I mean, it certainly does something so radical today because it says, you know what? You have to love your enemies and pray for them serve them. That is completely out of this world because you need to know right now there are warring voices and forces at work in your life to tell you this. The basis of your unity is in the basis of your country of origin, of your politics, of your race, of your gender, of your choices of how you want to educate your children. (laughs) Your economic status, these are the basis of your unity. That's what the world says, but the word of God says, no, the basis of your unity is Christ and Christ only. And because of that, there will be deviation. There will be salt. That's why Jesus said that. There will be light, because light is different from darkness. Salt is different from unsaltiness. Because it's not of this world. Here is why it matters. I've been watch- I watch a lot of 9-11 stuff this week, and I, every time I watch it, I don't know why people say, let's never forget. I still would like to forget because I watch stuff, and I'm taken right back. I mean, immediately how I felt and what I was you know, on my way looking at the Sears Tower to work that day and just like, what is going on? But one, I've watched a lot of clips, but I've never seen this clip again. Some of you may remember this. At the end of 9-11 that day, around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, do you remember what happened? Do anybody remember this? All the members, those who were there in town, members of the House and Senate, 
on both political sides, what did they do? They got on the stairs of the Capitol and they sang, God bless America. Okay? There was this moment. I, I mean, I was filled with pride. There's this, we're, we're doing this. There's a shared enemy here now. We're, we're unified. It's kind of like that experience with some of you grew up with siblings and you fight and fight and fight with your siblings. But the moment somebody comes up against your sibling, what do you do? You wage war against that person. You know, you defend. When COVID first started, I thought, wow, you know, this is really going to serve to unify all of us. Clearly, I'm not Nostradamus, okay? (laughs) Because here's the reality. Crisis, let's admit it, crisis has the ability to bring temporary unity. It does. It can do that. But it's not enduring. Because what the Apostle Paul is saying is you have to have something that supersedes everything that can actually bring people together. Why? Because we're all so very different. The only person you'll ever meet that's really like you, that thinks like you, is the person you look at in the mirror. That's the only one. All billions and billions of people on the earth, there's literally nobody who is exactly like you. Not just in terms of the way you look, but in the way you think. Okay? And here's the Apostle Paul, and he gets these other reports. They're facing opposition from the outside, but they're also facing opposition inside. People are starting to abandon unity in Christ and starting to fight one another and listen to the passionate plea. He is saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from my love, any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, will you please complete my joy of having the same mind and the same love? being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is not saying, think all the same way or even share all the same core convictions. Read the New Testament and what do you see? You see people who are very diverse from one another. And we're told in the final picture of where this story is headed, Jesus rose from the dead. This is his story. And at the end of the story, what are we told it's going to look like? Every nation from all tribes and peoples or languages. A unity with radical diversity. The Apostle John, who wrote that, could have literally said, "Uh, and then I looked, and then I saw people from every political party, from every country. Then I saw those who homeschooled their kids, and then I saw those who sent them to private school, and then I saw those who sent them to public school. I saw people from all walks of life bowing down under the king. Because you need, I want you to make sure that we all hear this. Unity is not the same as uniformity. The world's gospel says, it conflates those two, and it says unity and uniformity are the exact same thing. And we can only be unified When the day arrives, everybody is thinking the same. We just got to fight the people who don't think like us and get rid of them so we can be on top, and it's us, and then we'll have unity because now we all agree on how we see the world. And that's why we're at each other's throats right now. Families are divided over these things because we're convinced, I really can't do life with you unless you're just like me. But Christian unity sucker punches that. Because here's what it says. We're united under Christ, 
even when we don't share the same convictions. I want you to know something. I'm a Presbyterian minister, in case you didn't know that. Welcome. Uh, and I baptize infants. And for me, every week, that I'm, this is a road game for me, okay? This is not a home game, because I know most of you are closet Baptists, okay? And you don't agree with our views on baptism, okay? All right? We don't share that view together. It's a core conviction. I'm right, and you're wrong, but, you know, but nevertheless, we don't share that conviction, because why? We're different. It's okay to be wrong from time to time, folks. Just saying, you know? We don't share the same convictions that are very, very important, like how to educate your children, how to raise your children, how to even spend your money or your time. There's nobody in that we don't have consensus on how we should attack housing crisis, or we don't share the same views, none of us in this room, on taxes. How much should we should be taxed? We don't share the same views on gun control, or the environment, or even dogs and cats, for crying out loud, Okay. <laughs> But human beings, we're fascinating. We are always strongly tempted to worship something like ourselves. And in that, we always make secondary issues of first priority. In 1618 to 1648, just really relevant sermon illustrations this morning, okay? Reaching way back in time, but there was a bloody time in European history among Christians, and they were killing each other. And this German Lutheran path. Pastor Rupert Murdoch, I mean, not Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> Rupert Melanus, sorry, some of you know where that went, uh, <laughs> Rupert, whatever his face is, um, he wrote a treatise on unity, and what he said, this famous phrase in it, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, in essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, all things charity. You are a citizen of a kingdom that's real and a king who is on his throne in this world. It's an invisible kingdom, but it's not make-believe because you're physically here worshiping that king. That is your true citizenship. And because of that, that leaves room for a lot of non-essentials to have great liberty, great liberty. But this is the non-negotiable, friends. Love. Is never up for debate. How is that even possible? How do we seek unity? I'm going to do a couple more Greek words and then we're done with that. We have another stunning word here, and it's this word uh, conceit. Okay, it's a Greek word. I want you to stick with this. It's a Greek word called kinodoxia. So Paul says, you got all these problems from the outside and the inside. Well, you know, don't be selfish with one another and be really humble <laughs> with one another. Okay, that doesn't solve really anything. He uses this word, and it really is telling, because the word means this, vainglory, emptiness, emptiness. The Bible's been telling us since Genesis chapter 3 that we once had this glory, we lost that glory because we wanted to choose our own glory. That's the Bible. God has a glory, we choose, chose our own, and ever since then, in this life, we are empty. Nobody wants to admit that. <laughs> But there is this like inner gnawing thing inside every single one of us that feels really, really empty. We don't want to tell anybody about it. But the Bible's saying, oh, it's actually there. There's this emptiness, this devoidness of glory. And it's why we go out into the world and we just push and we push and we push. And we look for glory through our career and we just overwork. We overwork because what are we doing? We're wanting to look back at our career and we want you to look at me and say, look what I did. Don't you see my glory? 
And we want to look and say, we push and push. We want our kids to be successful. Because why? Because then look how glorious of a parent I am. Or we push and push and push and say, I've got all the right views, all the right social views right now. Look at me. Listen to me. Hang on every word I say. Don't you see how smart I am? And then we unite ourselves under all these things that more serve our interest. But here's the Apostle Paul. And here is he saying this crazy thing. And there's another word here that kind of appears here. And he says, we are united to this king. Okay? And what does that mean here? Paul is saying we are a citizen of heaven. And I want you to really hear this. Because theologians got trip over this word. You know, do nothing over selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so I'm going to answer how to do that with a third point here. I lied to you this morning. I said we had two points, but I just didn't know what to call it, okay? So next week, our third point is Steve Sturman's next week, okay? I have to break into the wall, Steve, but I'm not going to steal your thunder. Because the Apostle Paul, in the passage we look at next week, he does another stunning thing, and it's this Greek word, kinao. Paul is saying... There's a way out of all this. And in all your inner emptiness, and we're always looking to others for glory, we're always serving our own purpose, there's a way to seek others and to fill the glory void in their lives. But the problem is, is we all feel so spent and so empty and so united to many different things that we don't feel united to one another, and we have this emptiness. How can you and I literally look out of the world and view others as more significant to ourselves Well, Paul preaches the gospel. Because theologians got tripped over this word right here. You know, he emptied himself. And literally, a heresy has come from this. Some people look at what Jesus did is that Jesus had all this divine power in heaven. And he came to earth and emptied himself of his divine attributes by becoming a human. We don't believe that. But rather, what the Apostle Paul is saying is this. Now, please listen. The Apostle Paul is saying Jesus Christ of Nazareth has preexisted from all eternity. We, we read the Gospels and we see Jesus, the lowly Jesus, this human figure. But you have to understand, from, from eternity's past, if you looked at Jesus before he came to earth... It would be like stepping in front of an atomic bomb. The brightness of his majestic glory. Jesus has always had this glory. It's why in the transfiguration account, the one time we, peek, we get to see a little window into this, who he really is, it's like this literal mountaintop experience. Jesus looks bright as shining as the sun because that's Jesus' glory. But what Jesus did, he has all this glory. Jesus is beautiful. Gorgeous. I mean, the only thing you're going to do when you see him is just drop down on your feet and worship. That's, you won't be able to do anything else. And he's always been that. But in the incarnation, what did Jesus do? He gave up his glory. He gave it up. Look, he's been beautiful all eternity, and then we're prophesied. What's he going to look like when he comes to earth? Like nothing. <laughs> he won't look beautiful. He won't look majestic to attract us to him. There'll be nothing what he looks like. And yet here's Paul saying he's always had this glory because in the gospel, 
what Jesus Christ has done is to reverse all the problem. He has come to give you his glory to fill that void and to unite you to himself and to unite all these different people to himself. It's why it closes like this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Well, we don't do that well. It's hard to do that. How do we do it? How can we count others more significant than ourselves? How can we do that with people who hold convictions different than ours? How can we count others more significant than ourselves who live in a different country than us? How can we consider other races and genders more significant than ourselves? How can we count others more significant than ourselves when they've made vastly different decisions in life, decisions we'd never make? How can we do this? How can we view the person who, who, whose votes are different from us more significant than ourselves? Only by understanding that in Christ, that person has been given the glory of Jesus. And you couldn't possibly stand in front of the glorious Jesus Christ and say, well, wow, I'm more significant than you. It's not possible. Jesus Christ has done the most unthinkable thing ever done on this planet. He's given all of his glory to every single one of us who follow him, who are so different from one another, and united every single one of us to him. <laughs> Think about that. Every very different, difficult person you have nothing in common with, and Jesus has put his glory into that person if they're a Christ follower, and he has literally united you to them. And you're going to be with even that person, not just Jesus, for all eternity which is why he is the only basis for our unity. Nothing, nothing else, not one other thing will ever do, only him. Lord, we, um, we, every single one of us, came in with our defenders and we had them up even during this. But I just pray with the faith of a mustard seed, we'd, we'd take hold of that because for 2,000 years, this has been the secret sauce. This. The ability to unite radically very different people under one head, this glorious figure who has come to fill that inner emptiness that drives us to attach ourselves to so many things to say, this is what gives me glory. If I unite myself to this, I'll have glory. And you strip us of that, and it's painful, but you do it because you love us. Help us to believe this. We pray against anything in our hearts, our minds that are causing resistance to this. And Lord, help us, this church, to continue to deeply love one another by faith. Help us to look different from one another, more different next year at this time, and more unified. We pray that in your name. Amen.